the simplest commercial baking resource. Brought to you by Bakerpedia and hosted by Mark Florka. With 45 years of industry experience, Mark knows the ins and outs of baking. He is Bakerpedia's community forum manager and baking instructor. He's here to share knowledge and help you grow connections. You're listening to the Baked In Science Podcast. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us on episode 73 of Baked In Science. In this episode, we're going to explore the impact of networking and empowerment through research. As many of you know, mentoring is almost like a hobby for me. The opportunity to share knowledge and experience with students and not-for-profit projects is something I truly enjoy. This one is special, and I can say confidently that it's my favorite mentoring project to date. Listen to our bonbon boy conversation. Welcome everybody to another Baked in Science, and I have some great guests with me here today. First of all, before I introduce our guests, I'm going to tell you a little bit about this project and how I got involved. This is a project of producing a bar with some farmers in Senegal. Facilitating this is the Montana State University program. And how I got involved and why I want to bring this up is to always impress upon you how valuable networking is. And that is, I worked in a large laboratory setting, research and development area, where we had about 250 scientists. And one of the gentlemen that I got to interact with once in a while, his specialty was fabrication of things using different equipments, and especially dairy was one of his huge strengths. And we got along really well and, and became friends. He retired a number of years ago and now spends his days in the salt life sailing off the coast of Texas. And I guess he knew some people from his life and through the universities and things like that. And he got a request to look into some information about baking and who might he know baking. So he thought of me and called me and Ted told me, here's a friend of mine, Juan Juan, Please call her. She needs help baking. Okay. And so that's what happened is I contacted Dr. Ku, professor at Montana State University, and I will hand it over to Dr. Ku to introduce yourself to us and your students that you have there. Thank you, Mark. Hi, everyone. My name is Wan Yuen Kuo. And as what Mark just mentioned, yes, I was the lady, I was the professor who reached out that, please, we need help baking. First of all, I am from Taiwan. I got my bachelor in National Taiwan University in the Department of Agriculture and Chemistry. Then I got my PhD in food science and human nutrition in the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. That's actually where I met my husband. Uh -huh. so that is your good friend who introduced you 
Tom Gladmuller is the, the gentleman that I know from ADM. ADM, we've had a lot of interaction with the University of Illinois. Figured it might have been U of I was the link somehow. So I was in U of I until 2016. Mm -hmm. uh, I finished my PhD. I stayed one more year to do my postdoc. And in 2017, I moved to Montana to start my assistant faculty position in the Department of Health and Human Development being a faculty member of the Sustainable Food System Graduate Program and also the undergrad program of Food Enterprise. Wow. So that's just a really brief story about me. Excellent. And you have two students joining you there today as well? Yes. Would you like to introduce yourself? So my name is Evan Alan. I'm from uh, Ghana in West Africa. And uh, I came to uh, Montana State University for a master's in Sustainable Food Systems. And now I'm doing a PhD in food processing. For my master's in sustainable food systems, my project was to develop a peanut nutrition bar, and that's what we'll be talking about today. And the other young lady there? Yeah, hi, I'm Chidmaifi. I'm from Nigeria, also in West Africa. I'm doing my master's in sustainable food system. I have a focus for underutilized crops, so I'll be working on fermentation. But at the moment, we are working with the same women who Edwin co-developed the bar with in Senegal and yeah. So we can talk about the yogurt a little bit too then maybe. Yeah, that's cool. And our illustrious guest, Aliyu. And Aliyu, forgive me, I don't know how to pronounce your last name. Hello, everyone. So my name is Aliyu and the last name he pronounces Ngai. Ah, okay. Uh, Aliyu Ngai. So I'm also from West Africa, from Senegal, but like Senegal is French speaking with West African country. And then so my background, I have my agricultural engineering degree at a technical school in Senegal and have my master's degree on economics at the University of Dakar, where I'm pursuing a PhD and I'm focusing on technology on grain storage. So I'm kind of a fan of uh, technology and want challenges. Like if I remember the first time I visited the U.S., I was working with a USAID funded project and my manager seemed to like challenge me that you cannot make it to make it to Washington. And so I, I get to the embassy, get a visa and go on Friday and Monday morning at the time. I think it was around the year 2010. I just booked a room at a Holiday Inn in the Washington so I can have a view on the White House. Call him in the morning and then show him the White House and the Abraham Lincoln Monument, etc., and spend there one week, like meet different Senegalese and come back to Senegal. And also, I was a fan of like technology, like GIS and a kind of mobile data collection system. And so I did three or four trips in San Diego with the Redland University to learn about ArcGIS and with other companies that are working on mobile data collection system. And I did visit different countries. I think it's how I met with students to connect with a U.S.-based organization that had a project. Another fantastic example of yeah. networking and the importance. Yeah. yeah. And and what was funny was I was hired by this organization in the plane and they told me that they are heading back. They are going to Senegal on Thursday and I just like make it to the airport and change my flight. And we were in the same plane. Would you like to work with us? And it's, I think it's where the connection comes. So I'm happy to be here. Thank you. 
Thank you. That's fantastic. I didn't know all those details. That is amazing. That is really amazing. So Alexandra, she's speaking French. So we had like three hour discussion into the plane. That is and fantastic. That is excellent. They, to Senegal, they do the inter- interview and at the end, just call me, offer me some chocolate and ask me if I'm ready to work with them in that project. And it's how I get connected with wow. them. So that brings me to, you know, what came first? You know, it's kind of like the chicken or the egg thing, right? Did the bar idea come first or did the involvement from Senegal, did Senegal find MSU? Like, how did that sort of come about? Yeah, so I wanted to put a keyword, indigenous food, here. Mm-hmm. So it all started from this keyword. I did not know anything about this. I have never heard about this term before the year of 2018. Sushi Sean Sherman from Oglala, Lakota tribe. So his topic was the evolution of revolution of indigenous food in North America. Mm-hmm. So I was really inspired by the entire speech. He mentioned this term of an indigenous food processing. He said nixtamalization. And I was basically frozen. Of my, my brain was frozen because I had no idea what it was. At that point, I already studied food processing, food chemistry, nutrition science for over a decade since my undergraduate degree. But I never heard about it. And that basically opened my eyes to the world of indigenous food and indigenous food processing and food science. And the implication of that to the nutrition and Basically, the societal and ecological system of the global indigenous food system. So uh, from that point, uh, very just miraculously, there was a student in the same month when Chef Sean Sherman gave the speech. After I went to that speech in the same month, I got an email from a student from Ghana. He said, I am from Ghana. I have seen plenty of crop produced in the field. So in the summertime, we have abundance of food. But then I've seen those crops rotten in the field because we do not have enough technology to preserve them. And so therefore, there are people going hungry with food rotten. There is a connection here that the kind of food processing technology, the food engineering, the food science that I have been learning, maybe there's a way to connect it to the indigenous communities. So I took a student and in the same summer, I went to the Institute of Food Technologies annual meeting. And I met the director of Bounty Field International, Alexandra Spieldop. And I said, I've got this idea. I wanted to work with indigenous communities using our food processing to make connection between modern food science and indigenous traditional wisdom to support the community nutrition, economic development, and ecological system. And she said, yes, I'll find you someone to help you. And initially... We were going to work with another country, but then after Edwin has been preparing for so many months and Chandra said that, no, actually, hold on a second. Uh, Let me switch you guys to another country. There's very, very capable men that is in that country in Senegal that he is, you'll be in good hands with him. So we were in the last minute given to this very capable man and we have no idea what's going to happen. And that's how we were introduced to Aliou. And so, Aliou, this is, as Dr. Ku has mentioned from Edwin's experience, is similar in that they have crops that are essentially underutilized is often the word that we use, right? So they have sorghum crops and they have the peanut crops, of course. And the baobao is the fruit. And so that's where you came in 
did you have to convince these farmers a lot or how did that sort of develop for you in trying to bring this project together a little bit more? Exactly the same situation, but additionally also, there is that we are producing different crop, like we are producing peanuts, mm-hmm. but usually we're getting the oil from outside. So we're producing like grains, like maize, sorghum, millet, but we're getting like cereals like that you can use with milk or like finished product. We're getting that from China or from France, from the European countries or from elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So how to convince them was just look at this product. We're making that, we're producing like the raw material, like the oil, but when we need oil, it will be have to be imported from other countries. And it's kind of a like a governmental initiative also, how we can make more processing on our product. But exactly it was the same, like the cowpea or all that kind of product. Either you sell it in raw material or you have a maybe 40% loss because you don't have the technology to store it or to processing and making other finished products that you can use. At the time I was working with Bountiful, it was even worse because we were mostly thinking like how you will do the post-harvest of the product. Like once you harvest your millet, how you're going to trash it, dehurl it, grind it, etc., So it was like focusing on those process of making the product like from the harvest to be a raw material. Mm -hmm. And then it's from there that we were working even with the women farmers on making value added product. And it's where they see that we can do much more with technology on making the products ready to be used instead of just exporting our raw material or leaving them to the rotten and then importing product to feed our population. It was what we were discussing with the women farmers, with the partners, etc. And to introduce that product, it was the same like idea that we sold to USAID to get the funding to research fund here when I was working with Bounty Field. So it was kind of the speech we were having with different partners. So you were instrumental also in not just doing the engineering and organizing with the the farmers that you also were being a marketer and convincing the government to to fund these projects so that they had the money to be able to get the equipment that they needed and, and things like that. So you, you had to wear a lot of different hats then all the time. Just for a moment, I'll skip some of the middle stuff. So then this bar came about. And is this culturally, is this like a traditional or a very popular type of breakfast bar? Or was this a new concept to introduce something that was rich in protein and vitamin C and things like that? Unfortunately not. I won't say that it's something common because... We have a heritage of French countries. So as we were former French colonies and in Senegal, mostly the, the breakfast was kind of uh, wheat bread. You will see different bakeries in different lo- locations of Senegal. And most of the breakfasts are like some bread with a sauce of cowpea or mayonnaise or butter or chocolate or something like that. Like mm-hmm. you put some chocolate your bread and it's what you're eating for breakfast. There was a movement that eat local food, but that was promoting like kind of a porridge from millet or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mostly like a product that was made with millet. Even the bread, 
the research institute end up to say that we want to introduce like a portion of millet flour into the bread. We're not producing wheat in Senegal. We're importing that. So traditionally, you see that farmers are making product that is similar to the bar, but usually with wheat bread and maybe they will be mixing other flour and peanuts. Even I was not familiar with the Kumutu, you know, Edwin, when we found out that in in the Kafrin region, I wasn't familiar with that, but mostly in Senegal. If it's more modern, it's the bread when mm-hmm. with coffee, or if it is a little bit traditional, it's with the millet porridge. The porridge, like yeah. that, made, yeah, with some so high end carbohydrates, basically. As yeah, as but as it's not that common. the mm-hmm. The more common breakfast will be a bar of bread that you put some chocolate or butter on it and use that with your coffee. And then the idea of bringing like the more nutritional bar was, I would say, great because the population could see that it's nutritious and maybe the cost may be less and it's local food, etc. So didn't need a lot of promotion for farmers to. So mm-hmm, there is mm-hmm. need of a lot of promotion of that about the quality, the nutrition, and the impact of on the environment on in our local economy because we're mostly using local ingredients. And so, Edwin, before we even started to think about how we're going to make these, you guys were formulating, trying to develop a nutritious bar, bigger than a cookie and smaller than a bar, so to speak, but we, we call it a bar. You were looking at incorporating cowpea. Is sorghum and millet in the bar as well? I- no, for the bar, it's cowpea flour, corn flour, and balba. Those are the uh, major ingredients. The balba, and then of course the, the peanuts, right? And the peanuts, yes. Yeah. The peanuts. And so the peanut is one of those other underutilized crops. They gave them an opportunity to make something with their own peanuts. So now they didn't have to go and search for buyers for the peanuts. They were going to produce their own peanut butter and and everything else themselves, right? What kind of challenges did you have in the beginning when you were making this bar? Were you working with Dominic on the formulating of the bar in the beginning? No, so um, at the beginning, I was working with a different group of undergraduate students. Okay. The women farmers had given us some instructions. What helped was our approach to this project because we started with participatory action research, which means we did surveys and focus group discussions to make sure we were going to do what the women wanted. We didn't want to produce a peanut bar that the women wouldn't like. The first part was getting instructions from the women. Once we had these instructions, we played around with some local ingredients first. So we played around with sorghum, with millet, with corn and cowpea. We even tried wheat just as an alternative. Let's see what wheat can give us. The best combination we had was corn and cowpea. So we start with corn and cowpea. Mm-hmm. At the beginning, we also didn't know how to incorporate the peanuts. We would ground the peanuts into small bits and then sprinkle it on the top of the dough and then bake it. We'll get the bar with like peanuts at the top. That's mm-hmm. how it started at first. And then later we're like, oh no, let's use the peanuts. Let's put it in the dough as like a peanut butter. And so it'd be, it evolved from just like um, a dough made from corn and cowpea to like a mix with corn, cowpea, baobab and peanut butter. Following the instructions, the woman made it easier. But then we had to explore the local ingredients first. That was, I think, exploring the local ingredients was our greatest challenge. With baobab, baobab has this tart 
flavor sometimes if you use a bit too much. And so the woman warned us, they were like, hey, you can't use too much of the baobab, else it's going to be sour. We tried it, I was like, okay, let's see if the women were right, you know. <laughs> and we, so we tried it out, and they were, they were right. They were like, yes, if you used too much baobab powder, it became too tart. So we limited our baobab powder to like 30% of the formulation. It could give that citrus sweet flavor fruit without, aroma, the yeah. mm-hmm. without the tartness. The advantage is that this fruit, it's again, it's native, it's indigenous to Senegal, and it has got three times the amount of vitamin C of like any other fruit that, like say any citrus fruit or anything like that. Actually, six times, six times, six the times. orange, <laughs> yeah. six times vitamin C and orange. Yeah. There's this publication that gives you the numbers. I think it has like three times the antioxidants in cranberries. It's very nutritious. They use it as um, a weeding food for malnourished children. This episode is brought to you by Grain Millers, a leading manufacturer of organic and conventional whole grain ingredients focused on supplying safe and healthy ingredients that add value. Check out their gluten-free oats, fibers, wheat, barley, and rye ingredients at GrainMillers.com. So they have an awareness that it has nutritional benefits. That is really good. Yes. The initial challenge is I remember not only, um, Edwin mentioned, not only to source the local ingredient and make sure that ingredient really meets the nutritional quality standard. And then our uh, food science world of shelf stability and the aflatoxin and the yeah. basic safety of Kelstead and then also the texture stability. So initially the women farmers, they also gave us instruction about focusing on the texture. It's got to be soft enough that children will like it. It's too strong, too hard. Children won't like it, so it has to be soft. But then it cannot be too crumbly. They have a combo to that, as you mentioned, that is a favorite product in the local market, but it never lasts for more than three days. Do you want to talk more about how? So Kongutu is the local version of that of a peanut bar. But uh, when they introduced Kongutu to us, they were like, hey, we have a, like a peanut bar. A lady was like, come, I've seen like, what you're showing to us, because we took uh, samples from, from Walmart, like peanut bars from Walmart. The lady was like, hey, come. What you're showing us, I've seen it before. And then she showed, showed us Kongutu. And so they have something like that, but it, it's really crumbly. It falls apart. When we're going through the airport, TSA didn't identify it as like a, a bar. They identified it as flour. And so the woman said that they want something that's soft, but then they don't want it to fall apart. Because if it falls apart, they can't sell it. And so one of the challenges we had to address was keeping the bar together whilst making it soft. They were very engaged. There wasn't really a lot of trying to convince them to do something way outside of their comfort zone. They were willing to go outside of their comfort zone a little bit, if need be, but they really were engaged in trying to bring a success to market. That's really good. That's really cool. Makes it even more exciting. We were formulating, as Dr. Koo says, we were trying to work on texture. I remember we were trying out some different things like glycerin and so on. And of course, we always have to then keep in mind, can they get access to it? That was always the thing. And then that's where then Aliyu came in, kind of, you know, can he find distributors for the ingredients and stuff? So it was really a very collaborative thing between the university 
and Aliou's organization and the women farmers. And so I was helping a bit with, we were talking about some of the processing. So as you mentioned, the aflatoxin, for example, not everybody is aware of how dangerous peanuts can be unless they are aware of the American Peanut Corporation scandal or problem. That is also how, for those of you who are aware of the American Food Safety Modernization Act, the, the, what people call FISMA, the Food Safety Modernization Act, it was born out of that problem. That gave birth to the Food Safety Modernization Act to create traceability. That's where we ended up then talking about aflatoxin and would it be difficult to do? And it turns out it's an instrumentation and it's not a difficult process to do. And, you know, working with LEU on designing the whole facility. And I remember what struck me was so interesting and very socially minded and, and community minded is that the facility included an area not only for like for lunch breaks, a break room, but an area to have daycare for the children and an area for them to have a prayer room because most of the people there are of Muslim faith, if I'm not mistaken, and they have specific times during the day that in their faith, they want to have the opportunity to pray. And so I thought that was just amazing. I mean, to go not just worried about production in the facility, but this whole facility was, was a community within itself to be part of the community. That was really quite interesting. How far are we now? You've been over to visit recently, and Chenema was able to work with them on the yogurt, right? I read a report. So don't run away. I know it's not baking, but it's interesting. And I want to bring that around to that as well, too. But uh, where are we with the bar? Have they been making some bars yet in, in Senegal? Yeah, so based on what we have learned from Aliyu, Aliyu had been able to offer some training of bar making in Senegal. So the community that we work with is about 15 minutes driving distance from the local chamber of commerce. So in the community itself right now, it still does not have their own manufacturing facility. Training has to take place in the local chamber of commerce. We managed to organize the women travel to the chamber of commerce and then do some baking trials. But then Good. in the long term, like the factory, Mark, you were just mentioning, Ali yeah. was able to use that factory design that through collaboration with the senior design class of MSU Chemical Engineering. So Professor Paul Gannon offered this mentorship for the student team to design this human-centered factory that has the prayer room, children's room, and break room for the women. Because anytime we met with women, there's going to be a kid on their lap. There's a kid on their shoulder or something. So mm -hmm. the kid is always with them. Then you have to design a way that women can work with the children. Yep. And so with the consultation with LDU and then also have the design reviewed by the women. This podcast is brought to you by KPM Analytics. Did you know that you can use KPM Vision inspection technology to improve product quality and consistency at full line speed? Virtually any food product can be measured using 2D, 3D, and color imaging technology, either directly during the production process or using a benchtop inspection system for at-line quality checks. To learn more, go to www.kpmanalytics.com. There's that 
design made by the chemical engineering class, senior design class, and you use that design and pitch it to the African Development Bank and got their commitment to put $60,000 US <laughs> of funding to build the first community factory. And that was really a encouraging moment for everyone, including me, my students. So I think that's really interesting how we get the connection with the African Development Bank. But it seemed like just researching is not enough. And, you know, it was kind of the commitment of the women farmers, because if I remember, and I'm sure Dr. Koa remember that, the women farmers were saying that we want you to come back. And we have received a lot of projects that are coming to discuss with us about an issue, a project, an opportunity, but we never see them back. Just like Edwin is doing his research for his PhD or for his master's degree. He came, like, do the survey, get an understanding, write his report, get his diploma, and that's it at the end of the history. And the women farmers seem to were like facing that and they emphasize on that saying that we want you to come back. And as they know me and they get my phone number, they can always call me. They were always telling me that we want this project to be real. And I was sure that for the project to be real, it cannot be done only by research. You need kind of some investment. And so as I like well connected in the community here, so I tried to pitch it to different organizations. It was all, not only the African Development Bank project. Uh, I went through USAID project, the World Food Program, etc. And once I discussed with Ibrahim Asal, the guys who meet there, he just asked me, are you really sure that you're working with a university from United States on food science? I say, yes. Can you bring them here in Senegal? I say, they, they have already been in Senegal and they start the restaurant that no, it's not possible. I say, yes, it's possible. And so could you help us to do it? I say, yes, I, I will be helping you. I didn't trust him at that time. I was saying that um, maybe he's just joking. He won't do it. One day I just asked him, Ibrahim, are you sure that you're going to do, do that? And he sent me like a big document, like request for proposal with the listing of all the community. Like, I think at the time it was 45. He corrected me last time. They're saying that it's 100 now in Senegal. The 45 site that will be building the plant and Dangan is part, like the village we're working with was part of the top. And he was telling me that we're making priority on this village because we have seen that there is some research behind, some support behind and the other side maybe do not have that and will make the priority on this side to, to build on that. And at that time, I say, why? Well, it seemed to be real. And I asked these other folk from the African Development Bank, and they told me, yes, we will be building that, and the budget will be $60,000, etc. I say, it seemed to be real. And then at the end, they give me like the design of the plant and send me the contact of the company that will building that. And at the end of the last trip that the students and Dr. Wanyuan was in Senegal, we have seen that the building really start. And now it's really start and it's, it's real. We will be having a plant where the women farmers now can make the bar and even add a product. I couldn't imagine how the support from the Montana University was important because it was selecting maybe from 3,000 demand. So I'm sure there were more than 3,000 demand. And just having that site selected and being 
part of the priority for the project because of the support we're having from Montana State University was just great. You are incredible. I've seen some of the pictures in Chetama's report of the women farmers and their smiling faces and things like, no wonder they're so happy. You guys are changing lives. You're not just making a bar. You're not just helping to utilize crops. You are changing lives. You're you're giving people an empowered future. That's overwhelming. That is like, (laughs) I'm (laughs) having to hold back tears right now because it is very, very inspiring and very touching. It is incredible. And that's a big reason why I love this project and I enjoy it so much and and have been trying to make time as much as I can to always be on all the calls and and things like that. That tells us about a lot of the other results. It's not just about a breakfast bar. This is so much more as this is about building a community. And like you said, Aliyu, is like there has to be follow through. This happens so much with projects where People do their research or things or get what they need to move on, and there's no follow-through, and they're left to their own devices, right? And so this has been amazing, Dr. Ku, that you've been able to keep this going with LEU so that there is the follow-through for them. I just wanted to add that in terms of follow-through, and I'm sure Dr. Koda mentioned that, like LEU said, um, several of the women, the first time we went, they weren't believers because... I think several groups have been to their communities and they take data from them. They never see them again. And we had these comments in all four communities. In one community, the chief sat in for our meeting with the woman just because he wanted to make sure we were authentic, you know. That's a big part of the success of this project because we kept going, we kept communicating with the woman. And even when we first made the first activations of the peanut nutrition bars, we entered into competitions we won the first prize in IIT's Institute of Food Technology, in IIT's uh, Developing Solutions for Developing Countries. We gave our winnings to the project just so that we could have that follow-through. We really wanted to help the women farmers. This project wasn't about like a publication or like getting um, started with the research lab. It was to help the women farmers. And so with Aliu pushing forward for a building, that's, that's what we wanted to see. And another thing is, like you said, it's baking. We, we bake the peanut nutrition bar. Usually when people think of development and R&D, they are thinking maybe a big extruder. They are thinking of like, it's great drying. You know, they're thinking of something fancy. It's just baking a bar in an oven. Yeah. And that's what's causing the development in these communities. And that's where we were trying to work and being realistic on the batch sizes and things like that to make sure that we're not oversizing the equipment for what they need to produce and, and keeping it realistic so that it is profitable in the end, too. That's the other downside, too. You, if you put a million-dollar bar line in, now you got to make $10 million worth of product to to pay for that bar line. doesn't make sense to do that. Before I go over to Chittam, we've talked a lot about the women farmers, and you, you mentioned the chief, Edwin, and stuff. And just to clarify for people in North America, the question that I often get asked is, well, what about the men? Do they not have husbands? Do they, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good question. And not just in Senegal and most parts of West Africa, for farming communities, the, the roles in, in the family, the roles in the community are still gendered. The men's role is to be on the farm, you know, plowing. They do the heavy work on the farm. And the woman's part is for harvest and post-harvest. So not just in Senegal, even in Ghana, it's the women who make 
you know, traditional snacks. It's like most relationships. The men are the hard, the physical labor, and the women are the managers and the executives. Exactly. Right? <laughs> exactly. To be respectful to the men. This is an indigenous community and like I like relationships are still like there's still gender roles. The first time we went to the communities, we interviewed we had discussions with the men and we told them our intentions about the project and they said it was a good project. And but we need to work with the women. So we yep. we asked for their permission first to work with the women and they were like, Yes, you should work with the women. And once the women start, we would support them as much as we can. Glad you could clarify that because, I mean, the thing is we always have to be respectful, as you said, of, of other cultures when we get engage into new environments and things and that we don't make assumptions about what is or how things are. As much as I said that, you know, jokingly, there is a traditional structure in place and that is how they live and that is what makes everything work in their community. That's why it's important to understand some of the culture. We always talk about the women farmers, the women farmers, and that I was sure it wasn't just their farm. <laughs> the other project that is part of this that Chetima here could speak to and is super interesting, I'm going to add to that after Chetama's had a chance to tell us a little bit about is the yogurt that has come from this as well. So can you share with us a little bit about this, Chetama? So at the moment, we are working on a beverage fermentation product. Mm -hmm. It started with trying to utilize sagam, which is very good in iron. So at first, it started with trying, thinking about using millet, and then we, we are looking at sustainability, and we are looking at the crops that also and be able to survive through adverse condition. That was how we went for working with sagam. And then we started looking at how we can make sagam a non-alcoholic drink. Because in Senegal, the part of Senegal that we are working with, they are mostly Muslims and they don't take alcoholic drinks. Yeah. Then we started looking at making sagam to look like something that's like a yogurt. Because when you ferment just sagam, it kind of gives you pito. It's something... It's another type of drink that is being found in West Africa that has alcohol. That was when we started utilizing sagam and milk to make the yogurt, a yogurt out of this product. Then we found that just using sagam and milk means we'll be doing spontaneous or natural fermentation where we can't control the microorganisms present. Then we looked for a method using batch derby fermentation where we use a successful batch of a yogurt drink or we use controlled fermentation where we use a Yugoslavia culture to ferment the product. Because we've had some focus group discussion with the women. We've done some focus group surveys with the women before we went to Senegal in January. We found out that they would also like to have a fruit in the drink. We were looking at working with Baobao, which is very good in vitamin C and is mostly found in most northern parts of countries in West Africa. And Senegal is a very, they have a huge market of Baobao. They were also thought about using Kudila Pinata, which is an indigenous fruit that's found in Senegal, but they don't really utilize much of it because it's seasonal. At the moment, when we went, we visited the women, we did some fermentation trials with them, and they were very, very eager to learn more about the fermentation. We also had fun with the men, and as we are about to round up the focus, one of the men was like, he wanted to say something. He said, what about livestock? The Taku asked him, 
are you a livestock breeder? He said, yes, that he owns goats and cattle. And he gets milk from these animals that they have to ferment. They do the milking at 7 p.m. They ferment overnight for 12 hours. And then they sell it in the market. They have to finish selling all this milk product or it would spoil. Yeah, because they have no fridge. And before we visited, they had no electricity. But in January, just before we came, they got electricity. And that was, that was really good. The man offered to give us the opportunity to see him milk these cows and for us to see how he gets the milk from them. So we did the trials with them, fermented sagam milk and barbell. And we also tried to use Codilla Pinata as well for us to understand how they can further utilize this product. So you're, you're essentially helping them in a situation where they have milk spoilage that you can utilize, prevent it from spoiling in, in a sense by creating yogurt, which has much longer shelf life for them to be able to sell. This has been fantastic. The All of the changes that you guys have done with this project is that that's where the agriculture and the food industry is so incredibly important and, you know, and baking and, and, and all of these things with food that because it's not just about that item that we make to enjoy. It's about how we can affect people's lives and how we change lives. And that can be something really important, like what you and Aliou have done and empowering these farmers. Or sometimes it's like, I bring a treat to my neighbor. So thank you very much, everyone, for coming on. This has been fantastic. Mark, if I can just add a little yeah. bit of acknowledgement that uh, the theme has to do with, like you've been guiding us the topic about the challenge and the reward of bringing people something that make them happy. So one of the challenges for as a factor perspective is that you publish or you perish. So mm -hmm. well, like, before I get into this community development work, one of my mentors told me, do not work with communities. They will slow down your publication. They were absolutely right. My publication has been really slow. But then I was being pushed by my students when at the end of our Edwin's research, I thought, okay, I'm done. Like, he's, all, he's done his thesis. We don't have funding. I don't know where to go to. So I'm just going to stop here. And he was like, um, are you stopping? Like, if, you, if we stop, those women of Amash, they're going to be there. They're not just like disappearing. You know that, right? And then Chima as well was like, uh, can you look at my report <laughs> They keep pushing me, as well as Aliu, to like tell me, remind me that the women farmers are calling me again. Mm -hmm. So those are the motivation. Not to mention, we were so fortunate to have funding from Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research, FFAR, that really got us start this project into a larger scale and bring us back to Senegal again after COVID and start the fermentation process. And one more last more acknowledgement is to overall the indigenous community, including our Senegal indigenous community partners, but also where Montana State University right now stands is the ancestral territory of the North American indigenous community. We have eight tribal nations and much of the knowledge and resources that we were given are actually passed down from them. So just a one another acknowledgement to that all these are happening, not just because of the people that we're seeing here, but from the ancestors that are willing to give us these knowledge. There's a lot of great things that are, are going on. And yep, sometimes we need to 
break some of the traditions and the the biases that have, have always been. There's too much bias on the peer reviews in terms of who does and doesn't get published. It's not always scientifically based. Those are some of the biases that we have to change as well and not give up, you know, just keep plugging forward and that we don't lose the indigenous knowledge, the, the traditional knowledge that, that people have learned over decades and centuries and stuff. This has been fantastic. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Have a wonderful day and a wonderful evening and look forward to speaking with you all again soon. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye. This episode is brought to you by Grain Millers, a leading manufacturer of organic and conventional whole grain ingredients focused on supplying safe and healthy ingredients that add value. Check out their gluten-free oats, fibers, wheat, barley, and rye ingredients at GrainMillers.com. That's it for another episode of Baked in Science. Thank you for joining me and allowing me to share this incredible project with you, an impact that will certainly be remembered by many for a long, long time and continue to grow and make a positive impact on people's lives. Join me next month for another episode of Baked in Science when we will be getting into lipid chemistry in baking. I'm your host, Mark Flerka, Bakerpedia Baker Influencer and Podcast Host.